Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined today by NCR's Middle East and North Africa correspondent, the queen bee of the show, the genius to my amazing. It is Reem Abuleil. Reem, thanks for being on here. How are you doing? Loving the spelling bee reference. <laughs> this is the perfect intro. Thank you. Hi. That is 90% of our correspondence these days. It's comparing that is very spelling bee our, our, our friendship has survived a pandemic because of our daily spelling bee uh, WhatsApp situation. Yes. Compare lists. We often get the queen together. Uh, and it's a glorious time every day. And yeah, it's been a glorious time in tennis. And it only just ended. I mean, we're recording this on December 6th, well into the Christmas season. It is no longer too early to see Christmas displays in stores. But tennis only ended yesterday at the tour level. Yes, you're you're telling me, huh? <laughs> I know. I'm telling you because you were there. You have been one of the, you can, we'll talk about this too in here one of the only reporters really still like paying full attention this last month or so to the sport because it's been a grind for everybody players staff everybody included and obviously the whole backdrop of everything happening Feng Shui and stuff adding different ambient stress to the whole moment we'll get to um but big picture before we get into the details what's it been like covering these tennis tournaments you know Guadalajara Torino and now Davis Cup uh in this stretch, having the tennis season only just end again, to reemphasize, on December 5th. And it restarts on January 1st with the ATP Cup. And in between, there's Abu Dhabi. But what has it been like being here for these dog days of late fall? Uh, just to clarify, I haven't physically been at any of these events. I have been covering right. them from uh, Weather Cairo or Abu Dhabi. I've been going back and forth. But um, there's also Billie Jean King Cup, which was right before Guadalajara as well. So, yeah. Right. And I've kind of been yeah on duty for all of these back to back. First of all, I don't know if I've lost stamina just because of the pandemic or it's been kind of brutal. But also, like you said, there haven't been that much interest as, as the season went on, like to, towards that last month, even though they're big events and I'm not dissing the events, they are big events. They're just really late in the season. And of course, Davis Cup finals like kind of takes the cake in that situation. But I'm we've been used to in Zooms like trying to f like make sure we get our questions in and there's a whole queue of hands up and stuff. No, that has not been yeah. the case. Like, really, it, it hasn't been the case at Billie Jean King Cup. It hasn't been even with Guadalajara. It has, and it's, again, it's, I don't even fault the... Guadalajara was mixed. Guadalajara was mixed. It was mixed. There were some dead ones and some... That's ones. true. And then ATP finals, to be honest, I expected way more. I, I, I definitely expected way more people. I actually put in two one-on-one -on -one requests for two of the eight players and I put in the request like a couple of days before and I got both which you would assume like that they're you couldn't right like usually they're too busy but I got them and um I'm not saying there were zero journalists because there weren't there were some but it was like not they were not busy rooms at all and uh ATP finals I actually uh, sorry uh Davis Cup finals I actually applaud the couple of journalists who went from one city to another, because like, you know how it was this year, it was a uh, three cities. Um, no one went to Innsbruck because of the, the lockdown situation in Austria, but like there were journalists in, in to, Torino who went to Madrid after a couple of them, but again, not busy rooms. And 
it's been strange because I'm, I'm on duty for different clients and I'm grateful for that because honestly, like it was good to get some work done because I kind of took a break at some point, um, just honestly a mental health break. And when I started again, everyone had lost interest in tennis. So I'm kind of like, in, it's weird in a way. I'm like, yay, I get to do whatever I want and ask all the questions I need. And, and, and if I have these like side kind of questions that maybe you wouldn't really ask because you don't want to waste everyone's time, I have the time to do that and stuff. But also, it's problematic when you have big events, when they're calling it a World Cup of Tennis, when you have the Billie Jean King Cup, which honestly, they, it was canceled last year, and people have been waiting to see what it's going to be like for the women in that format. Uh, ATP finals, I mean, it's the top eight. And honestly, I didn't feel the attention was great at all. The events were fine, and the tennis was good. It's just that I, I felt strange because I felt like nobody cared. I always sort of say that in the U.S. and working for a U.S. paper, and I don't work for a tour federation, so I'm not sort of obligated the way, like, Courtney, for example, obviously always rides out the full WTA season through what used to be the China Swing. Uh, we'll get to that. Through, uh, you know, the World Tour, uh, the, sorry, the, the WTA Year-End Championships, uh, WTA Finals. I just think it's confusing to call tournament finals. I think that's just confusing. But anyway, um, through those events, I I love how, sorry to interrupt, that, but I love like, how all the players, men and women, still call the WTA Finals and ATP Finals the Masters. Everyone calls it the Masters. It was never a call the Masters for yeah. the women, I, not that I recall, but everyone calls yeah. it the Masters. It was a Tennis Masters Cup for yeah. the men. Yeah. And I just love that even players who didn't play that era, so I understand if, like, Federer said that, you know? But, like, you have a Rublev say Masters, and I'm like, that's hilarious. Anyway, continue. I, I try to refer to them as year-end championships. I think that's the clearest term. Mm -hmm. Just call them that, or call them like the Elite Eight, or something. Something that makes that makes finals. Like, oh, is this her first time playing the WTA Finals? She's never made a WTA Final before. Well, no, she has several times, but this is her first it's WTA worse finals. when you have to. What do you say? When it's you're just, typing yeah. the semifinals of the WTA Finals, that's what I hated the most. Like the uh, final of the WTA Finals. <laughs> yeah, same. That's why I liked actually when they called it the World Tour Finals. It was at least different in the WTFs. With the, the U.S. tennis consciousness really runs from January through the U.S. Open pretty cleanly and, and with some dips. So definitely like February is not a big tennis month in the U.S. April is not an especially big tennis month in the U.S. minus like if you want to care about Charleston. And so once the U.S. Open happens, it's kind of the natural cultural end of the tennis season in the American sports consciousness stateside. And that certainly goes for my editors historically at the New York Times over the past you know, decade of working there, the number of appetite for stories really drops because there are no more Grand Slams left on the air and everything is kind of often framed as a build up to the to the Grand Slams for better or for worse or the next Grand Slam. And then also the NFL starts up, you know, the playoffs, the baseball playoffs, the start of the NBA season, start of the NHL season, the college football. By the way, Michigan finally not terrible for the first time in a long time. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, there's... A, a real dip. And so I haven't traveled to any tennis tournaments post U.S. Open since 2014. Uh, was the last time I did it, the first year of, of Singapore. Um, also because I couldn't get into China for visa reasons was a big reason that I had to stop traveling. Um, and I just didn't like covering London as an event. I didn't think it was a very worthwhile event to go to in person. So, yeah, uh, there's a natural dip there in the consciousness. But tennis is always slogged on for players playing for points, playing for more money playing for spots in the year-end championships, which are in their own way very rewarding uh, financially and points-wise. Those are legit goals for the tour. Um, but on the on the general consciousness of the sport, in the popular imagination of the sport, tennis is not a November-December sport. And so seeing actually what looked like pretty good crowds in, in Madrid from what I saw in, in, the, in the end, it was nice. It was impressive to see 
the event doing this well because Davis Cup, I feel like it's been so people have been saying, Oh, Davis Cup is dead, especially like French people, been saying this so loudly for the last few years. Like, oh, Davis Cup is dead, we lost Davis Cup, there's nothing sacred anymore. Have like Todd Woodbridge getting all huffy because they make some like tweet making fun of Leighton Hewitt looking sad, and it's like, Oh, there's no dignity in Davis Cup. It's like, Well, there's never, you know, whatever, calm down, Todd Woodbridge. Is it. I don't know. What are we doing here? What What are we doing playing Davis Cup in December? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it avoidable? Was it worth it? What What What, just what do you make of what it felt like being there, watching this event, covering this event as a a big name event in Davis Cup? Davis Cup has cachet, even if it's being maligned by some purists. It's still, I felt like delivered, and I felt like the players still cared. I felt like the stakes were still there, and they still got Djokovic and they got Medvedev, who are the two top men's players. So that gave the event a lot of credibility. Um, what did, what did you make of it as a product and, and also how it fits in the calendar? I think... Is it good, bad? Does it need fixing? Is it okay? What do you what do you think? Okay, I, I like the multi-city situation because that guaranteed that they, they put a home team in every... So yeah. like every city had a home team playing. And when they move to five cities next year they're doing the same with the group stage they have four cities and they're gonna have because they're first of all there's changes they're gonna change from 18 teams to 16 so that means there's gonna be four groups of four in four different cities and they're they're gonna open a bidding process now and they're gonna have backup plans because if um if a city bids for uh hosting one of the groups and then the the team doesn't qualify for the finals they're gonna have a backup um, that's what they said. But anyway, uh, so they tried to do something different because two years ago, it wasn't completely empty all the time, but uh, with the, it was one venue at the Caja Magica and yeah. it was uh, three stadiums there. And a lot of the times, two of the stadiums were always empty for the other ties. Uh, so they were kind of worked on the schedule and they worked on that and that helped. I have to say that Torino and Madrid... Uh, they had fans. They had fans for doubles. They had fans for everything. Like, it was good. I again, I wasn't there. This is just from what I saw from TV. But it it uh, it looked good. And actually, the CEO of Cosmos said that before the day before the final, when once Croatia made it to the final, they flew in a private jet with 150 Croatian fans. <laughs> so that Cosmos flew in these fans. Yes, Cosmos flew what? in 150 Croatians. Can- can you explain to people what the current relationship is between Cosmos and the ITF? So honestly, Cosmos, the, the uh, so Cosmos invested a lot of money in Davis Cup, so they have control. They have control over decisions. Control. They have control okay. over. Uh, that's the way I see it. They're tournament owners. They're tournament basically, owners, basically. tournament owners yeah. while the tournament is still under the umbrella of the ITF. Uh, but like when they had their. So it's kind of like a tour event in that sense. It's almost like IMG owning Miami while still being part of ATP and WTA. Yeah, I guess. And uh, and when they had the like a uh, wrap up uh, press conference, it was Haggerty from the ITF and uh, the CEO of Cosmos. His name is Enric Rojas, I think. So um, was PK around this he time? He didn't. I actually didn't. Like I didn't see him anywhere, uh, no. like on, on TV. Um, I think Shakira was there uh, one day. I saw a tweet something, so maybe he was there that day. But uh, the tournament director this year was actually Fernando Verdasco, which I didn't even realize was a thing. 
I love how all these. <laughs> I, didn't know that, I didn't know tournament director was a role for Davis Cup. Then I was like, it's for NASCAR. I was like, yeah, what is you, it last, this cronyism I think is last wild. year it was Albert Costa. So at least it was a former player. But I don't know why the Spaniards love, like Spanish players who are still active players, love to be tournament directors. I don't get it. It doesn't work, but whatever. So it's what the t- we agreed anyway that last even two years ago the tennis was really good just because the format makes the, everything very ex- like intense. So that was yeah. still good. Okay, and there was a lot of emphasis on doubles. I felt like a lot of the ties went to uh, deciding doubles and stuff, and that was good and it was fun. Croatia rode doubles to the to the ex- final exactly, yeah. but the the ca- the slot on the calendar is very problematic. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, I'm talking to Rublev, and I know that he's gonna be in Abu Dhabi. In 10 days, you know, to play the Mubadala World Tennis Championship. And then 10 days later, he's hopping on a plane to Australia. This is insane. And he keeps saying, I'm not tired. I'm fine. That's Rublev. He's obsessed with the sports. He loves it. And he has all this energy. But it's going to catch up to him at some point. To think that Medvedev played the final in Turin, the ATP finals, and then went and, and played five matches... I mean, he breezed through all of them. He won 10 sets, so good for him. Like, 10 out of 10 sets, so it's good for him. But um, He's really good. I think they either need to move it to April, like the intended date for the Billie Jean King Cup, or worst case scenario, I mean, it's not great, but September. I mean, one or the other will work because this makes no sense. It's also too close to the ATP Cup to think that they, the Russians won ATP Cup in January and then won Davis Cup now and then are going to def- defend their ATP Cup title in less than four weeks. It makes absolutely no sense. So this, the time slot continues to be a problem. The multi-city situation, I think, is smart. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did the schedule in a way where when all the teams that are traveling after the group stage and going to the quarterfinals, they, every team will have two days. A two-day gap between the last tie they played and the knockout tie they're gonna play. So that's this. That's this year. Yeah, lot, lot to lot you covered there. I want to pause briefly. You mentioned uh, the new format for next year. There's talk. There were reports that it was gonna be put in Abu Dhabi for the finals, uh, and then a bunch of British pushback to that sort of or or eye rolling or aghastness about how that would ruin the event for some reason having it in Abu Dhabi. What did you think of that? That reaction that has not been confirmed by ITF or Cosmos at this point. Um, they did not say where it's going to be next year. Yeah. But, it, but but they kind of didn't yeah, deny what, 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 it. Like they were like, it's a preferred option. We're right. waiting to we're waiting to finalize. We can't announce without signing. But, but what do, what do you think? Abu, how do you think Abu Dhabi would uh, do as a host for an event like mm. this? And what do you make of the criticism? And by the way, I completely agree with what you said previously. Maybe this affects actually what time of year is good for Abu Dhabi because the weather there is obviously. Uh, you know, challenging at many times a year, but 100% in, on board with the uh, April idea. I've always said that uh, it's perfect between when the tour transitioning from the Americas to Europe, from hard to clay, you can put it in either on, you know, clay in America, hard in Europe, whatever, and it works. Um, or now I'm wondering, I, sorry, I'm asking you a bunch of questions at once here, kind of, or now I'm wondering if this opening up of the, the or this uncertainty in China, if there's a way to capitalize on the space that's clearing in the fall in the calendar and put it in October or something, you know, maybe before, before the year in championships, uh, before bear C, um, in that sort of window there could actually be an okay spot. for. Yeah. It. I mean, we don't know what's happening now with the Shanghai masters. So if that ever opens up, but obviously the ATP yep. didn't say they're going to stop playing in China, but 
in case. But anyway, definitely, I think April is doable. Well, first of all, uh, they're going to play indoors in Abu Dhabi. They're not playing outdoors. So it doesn't matter when. Okay. Because okay, they want to okay. maintain the tournament uh, conditions as much as possible. And one thing I didn't gotcha. realize, which I respected, actually, I didn't realize it was on purpose. The reason the three cities this year were Madrid, Torino, and Innsbruck is because there's altitude in all three cities. It's not the exact same altitude because Madrid is higher, but oh. it's comparable. So they didn't want someone to go for, uh, to be playing at sea level and then going straight to 800 meters above sea level, which I thought was smart. So, and they're going to keep in They said they're going to keep that in mind for the, the, the cities for next year. So Abu Dhabi anyway is going to be in an indoor arena. So that's, that's not, uh, weather is not a problem. So what do I think? First of all, let me talk about the um, reaction. I'm going to say that I had at least four different followers from the Arab world, different people who at least, who tweeted, uh, who, who DM'd me and asked, is it me? Am I being too sensitive? Or are all these British journalists acting in a very kind of xenophobic way about Abu Dhabi? And I was, uh, when I saw that, I was like, it's so weird because in my opinion, I'm not, I'm not accusing a certain person of something, but the general reaction for me is funny because none of these people have been to Abu Dhabi. Because actually there has only been an ex- one exhibition tennis uh, tournament in Abu Dhabi, and that tournament is an EXO, and it usually sells out. And the stadium is usually full, and it's not even a real tournament, <laughs> okay? So it, it, at the end of the day, the reaction immediately of, oh, it's going to be empty, doesn't make sense. I understand if the if the concern is why go to a place that won't have a home team if that is a priority. That yeah. is completely understandable because there is never going to be a UAE team in the finals. There's never even going to be an Arab team in the finals. So that's n- and it's not geographically central to the where the most of the teams are. I get that. Yeah, but it's also not the end of the world. Like it's it's uh, yeah. No, and it's, not, it's no, it's not putting in a new. You're not putting in New Zealand. And it's extremely no. accessible. And knowing Cosmos, they're flying people on private jets and stuff. Like I, I'm not none of like. For me, the reaction uh, immediately assuming that this is a place that where fans don't go to watch sport is insane because the UFC comes here. Golf has been coming here for years and it's always very well attended. The Exo tennis tournament is very well attended. Uh, Dubai tennis does great. I mean, Dubai tennis is the, best, is, is the best with attendance. It's really good. The problem is they always have the TV on the VIP area, and the VIP area is usually the, in any tournament. Yeah, but anyone who's watched enough to see crowd shots knows that you get, yeah, you get it's, crowds it gets, in Dubai. It gets rowdy. So, and it's, so anyway, for me, the reaction uh, has been over the top because they didn't care to speak to people who have been there at events, at least to find out, you know? Because I... Like, I would ask players, what is your experience like in Abu Dhabi? And they're like, we love this exhibition. Like, the players like it because the community shows up and they have clinics with the kids and they do this and that. So, anyway. So, in terms of that. In terms of, I think logistically, it's a bit hard, to be honest. If you have four European cities hosting the the group stage and then asking people to go to the UAE. I think it's it's not the same as going within Europe. It's not. It's not the same yeah. because traveling in Europe is quicker, for sure. So that. So that. Uh, that I totally understand. I think it's a big ask. Uh, it will people show up? I think the UAE. First of all, ten percent of the population are Emiratis. Everybody else is from all over the world. So if you think expats are not going to show up for this, you don't know this country at all. 
So, oh, yeah. so honestly, like if the, the Brits are going to show up, the Aussies are going to show up, the Canadians are going to show up, the Americans, like there's so many, the Spaniards, I live yeah. in an area here. I'm surrounded by Spaniards every day when I'm jogging or running under my house. Like I, for some reason, everyone around me is Spanish for some reason. So like there are people from all over the world here. So I, I don't think people understand the demographics here enough to know what they're talking about. I do understand everything else. That's, it, it might be a bit far uh, in comparison to the European cities. Uh, there's never going to be a home team, but they did say they wanted to be a neutral venue for everyone in the knockouts. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And also, the Davis Cup needs to be financially viable. Let's stop pretending that tennis should not care about money. Yes, there are certain situations like the situation we're in right now with Peng Shui, where it's very important not to prioritize money. But in other times, yeah. in something like this, it's understandable that someone who paid all this money uh, expects to recoup that money, especially when they had to cancel last year. So I get that. And the last funny yeah. thing uh, that I want to say is that Marin Cilic came up with a very interesting take yesterday saying, actually, next year, it might be a very good reason to go to Abu Dhabi because the World Cup is going to be in Doha. So maybe the fans going to watch the football will come and hop on a 50-minute plane and come to Abu Dhabi to watch the tennis. And I was like, oh, Marin, that's very creative thinking. That's not bad. Yeah. yeah, big year, big year potentially for sports in the in the Gulf region. Uh, you mentioned Andre Rublev being tired earlier. There was this uh, GIF or clip or whatever uh, that emerged from the press conference today of of Rublev nuzzling the microphone like a sleepy kitten, and then Karen Kachanov patting him on the head. And uh, Rublev has this sort of like I want you know talk about the Russians a bit and, and some of the players here. But Rublev is especially interesting. He's been one of the, he's, he's really endearing to a lot of, a lot of tennis fans. A lot of times in the whole sort of arrested development way that a lot of like, uh, you know, younger fans like love to infantilize these young male tennis players being like, Oh, what a little baby. But when he's actually acting like a kitten with the microphone, you know, it's, it's hard to argue that he's being a kitten in this moment. He does look very tired. But you're you're someone you're someone who followed Andre Rublev for a long time. Um, we haven't we don't talk about him tons on the show. But what do you think? Because I, I in my show notes I just put like something we should talk briefly about Rublev being adorable. What do you think about Rublev being adorable and sort of having this sort of? Because clearly like he's always trying to make Karatsev smile. He's just like always trying to be this like like happy guy. The adorableness while also at the same time hurtling towards self destruction with constant playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this weird mix of him seeming like happy and playful but also like kind of always on the edge of like some sort of breakdown when he loses it's what, what do you make of it? i find it seems, i find lot. him fascinating and like you said i have followed him for a very long time and i was there at next gen when he was there the very first next gen and just i got he's someone for some reason who i've spoken to a lot and i find him fascinating and i think he's super underrated when it comes to just how how, how interesting he is as a person. Like, he's just interesting mm-hmm. because, like you said, if you are just even watching him without even listening to what he's saying, he can, like, have these tantrums on court. And then at the same time, there are days when he he played a man- match against Tsitsipas in the ATP finals where he didn't miss a first serve for, like, an entire set. Like, it was insane, which is a level of focus you wouldn't necessarily expect from Rublev, right? So he can redline like that. And he can lose his cool completely. And it oscillates between both extremes so quickly. And he's obsessed with the sport. He genuinely loves it in a kind of a Rafa kind of like love for the sport. And he has this thing with his coach. Fernando Vicente has the same idea of just like 
we love tennis. We're grateful to be able to be do this. And that's why he never says he's tired because he genuinely wants to play all the time. This is what he wants to do. That reminds me of Dominic Team, yeah. who I feel like things have been rough for lately. That's the sort of cautionary tale, I feel like. And and with who burnt out and then also got physical injuries after that. With Rublev, because he missed out like just three months at some point because of his injury, the stress fracture he had or whatever, for him it, he he thinks that, oh my god, that was taken away from me. And I was like, dude, it was three months. Like it's okay, you know? But this is this is how obsessed he is with tennis. And from another standpoint, you um I, you're right in the fact that he's very he's very loved by by his teammates even like if you ask any of his teammates like who's the funniest on the team they're always going to say Rublev which you wouldn't necessarily think that he's funny but he is actually funny but he's just so spacey and his English is bad so when he's spacey and his English is bad to get to his point it's it's a whole it's a ride but um, I what I love about that Russian team is that they're genuinely friends they're not faking it. Like, they're genuinely friends, and they're very cool with each other, even though they can be super competitive with each other, because let's face it, it's the same generation. They're all trying to one-up each other. But it comes... Medvedev has beaten Rublev in a lot of big matches. Yes. Yeah. And also, Karen, in his mind, he was the first to break in the top 10, and then now he's, like, barely top 30. And he... Look at him. He had... He had... He was the leader of the team. I just... I didn't even realize that until I had to look it up. So in 2019, Medvedev, uh, no, Medvedev didn't play Davis Cup. So uh, Khachanov was the number one Russian player and Rublev was behind him. So Medvedev was the one playing Rafa and playing all of the, like the number one, he had the number one slot on the team. So he had, and with this Davis Cup format, the number one has to play the number one and number two has to play the number two. So... It was Karen who was... Hachinov, Hachinov, you mean, was number one, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you said Medvedev. Oh, sorry, Hachinov sorry. Yeah. Uh, my bad. Uh, Hachinov was number one and Rublev was number two. So two years ago, he was the leader of the team. And then now he's on the bench and they made him play just one doubles dead rubber. And he didn't seem salty about it at all. Like, he's he was super fun the whole time. Like, anytime he spoke to the press, he was really cool and... And I, I don't know, I really like that team. And I think that Rublev is the person on that team who makes everyone just get along. And you see how hard he's working with, with, with Karatsev in their moments together, like in doubles interviews, he's always trying to make him smile or like poke at <laughs> him or just be him like a goofball. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's fun. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I don't know if there's more you want to say, but I just... I no, I mean, for me, uh, what, okay, like if we're just talking... Vibes are good ge- on this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Karatsev smiled, which is a miracle, he smiled more than once. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's that's something. That's not easy at all. A couple of other things just about Davis Cup, since you mentioned that you want to talk about mm-hmm. any other stuff. The, uh, there were some standout people who did some crazy things. So we have to talk about Borna Goyo. Borna Goyo. Former, Former Wake, Forest. Wake Forest yeah, player. Yeah. So he uh, he won... He went three and zero. What, what were you going to say? <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I, I'm smiling at your use of the word deke. I'm very impressed. I know. We had this but conversation uh, before where I know a lot of the team names for college you're very good tennis, mascots, and that's so yeah. weird. But that's like the nickname of the nickname. It's even more than just being a demon deacon. So, yeah. So, that, that was impressive. Yeah. Uh, but, no. Um, so, he beat Yeah, but, you're, but yeah, Borna Goyo beat real people. He's outside top 200 and really beat a lot of people. He's, he's actually... Where I thought he could beat Rublev. Actually, he's well outside. He's 281 in the world. Yeah. And he beat Poprin, who's 61, Sonago, who's 27, and Lajovic, who's 33. And he played Rublev very tough, 6-4, 7-6. So, like, 
and and actually two years ago he was a last minute call up for Croatia for Davis Cup and he played really well. He had to play Rafa and Rublev, so obviously he lost both matches, but he played really well. So he's very interesting in that sense, and just this, he's just a completely different person when he plays Davis Cup, and he's really good. So that guy should really like show up on tour because he's very good. Uh, and then with uh, there's a Czech kid who I had had my eyes on for a very long time, and he had a really good week uh thomas machak i don't know if you know him i don't know mm-hmm. if i'm saying his name right because name. he doesn't have the audio on his atp so i'm not sure if that's how he says his name but he beat dan evans and he beat cascade and he's 143 in the world beating dan evans who's 25 like beating him easily 6275 i mean this is the thing i feel like i feel like the death of davis cup stuff is so overwrought and i was never a big davis cup purist to be clear it's not like I, it was never my sort of North Star in the sport the way it is for so many people. There's never ties anywhere near me in the U.S. I didn't grow up going to Davis Cup. Um, but like I feel like pretty much almost all the boxes of the Davis Cup are still getting checked in this format. You still have the complete underdogs coming out of nowhere, rising to the occasion, playing for their countries. You still have upsets. You still have tension. And I love that it's not broken up. Over over the course of a whole year, you know, take a play around and pick a three month break like it used to be. I, I like that there's a, a time when it actually has the full attention, waning attention, granted, in December, <laughs> yeah. but the full attention of the tennis world. I, th- I think that's all positive. And so, yeah, For sure. overall, I, Davis Cup, I feel good about, even if, I, again, yeah. Especially the countries who kind of, like, had a really good group stage and didn't make it through. When you're speaking with them, like, the, the a lot of them can think, like, I mean, someone like Francis Tiafo, for example, that, that guy was on vacation in Kabul, got a call five days before the tournament started they asked him to come yeah he flew to torino played one match that ultimately didn't matter because like halfway through the tie other results happened and like us was out of it and francis killed himself to play uh his match with the colombian guy may amehia and he got his first Davis Cup win, and that mattered to him. Like, he was like, you know what? Like, yeah. it matters to me that I now have a Davis Cup win. And then there's that Hungarian guy, um, Jombor Pirosh, who is yeah. also, like, 280 in the world or something. He beat Cilic and Melman. Like, just did both. Yeah. And he was like, we showed the Hungarian spirit and this and that and blah, blah. So from that side, you have Feli Lopez, you guys, who has four, he's 40 years old, and he won. Yeah, he was playing challengers in the build-up to this. And then he, he won in singles, and he beat Rublev. Like, what is happening? <laughs> so uh, it was, there were a lot of storylines, because I had to do a daily diary, and I was, not daily, like every other day, and I was kind of concerned, because I was like, is there going to be enough, like, information and stuff like that? But, like, every day there was a lot going on. I just think that, yeah, the, 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 week, the, the week they're playing in, it's just killing it. It's really killing it, because no one wants to watch tennis in December. One thing I didn't mention on the show outline, which I do want to discuss, Novak Djokovic in his departing Davis Cup press conference is asked if he's going, <laughs> the nine-time champion, world number one, going for, uh, to have a standalone record of the most men's Grand Slam singles titles ever, uh, to break through a tie with, with Rafa and Roger, is asked if he's going to play the Australian Open. Very basic question. And Novak, again, balks at this line of questioning, declines to answer obviously this he is didn't balk by the way i don't know scene. if you've seen the videos uh i, I okay uh, well, anyway. well i'm just gonna say it. i'm gonna let me it and you can describe it um colored by the vaccine mandates obviously which are now in place for australia I mean, what do you make of his of his refusal to to say anything this late in the game about if he'll play australia or not and his whole sort of 
coyness about this, and I, I, I called it on Twitter, I called it willfully exhausting. Like, his choice to keep this sort of, like, questions going. And I talked to some Djokovic fans, the ones who I can communicate with in a reasonable manner, um, who were not happy with this, who were, like, who just want to know if their favorite player is going to play the Australian Open, and they don't like being strung along, you know, by him in this whole thing, because I genuinely don't know. I genuinely, I mean... It sort of worked if he wants to create uncertainty. I genuinely don't know what he's going to do in, in come come Australia. I genuinely do not know. If he's already vaccinated, if he's not at this point, I, I have theories. I have hunches both ways. I wouldn't be surprised either way if he plays or doesn't play Australia. What do you make of him and this whole saga I'm, and how he leaves it at the end of the 2021 season? I, I'm not surprised at all, to be honest. I didn't even expect him to say any. I mean, I mean it was it was, defi- it was definitely a question that had I'm to be asked. I'm not surprised by him continuing his line of his No, line of I'm not of, surprised of because the yeah. way he's, he's making it seem, if it's true, it depends. Honestly, who knows? Maybe he's vaccinated. I'm one of the people who thinks maybe he's vaccinated, but he just doesn't want to give people the satisfaction of like forcing him to disclose this at a time before it really has to come out, which is when he shows up, you know, to Australia. But uh, if, if let's say everything he is saying is exactly what he's feeling, it seems for him, it's a big deal. It's a big decision. He's cornered in a way. He knows the stakes. He knows that there's a record on the line. He knows that he can win a 10th Australian Open kind of in a sleep in a way. And, uh, and he knows all of that. But he also ha- has obviously said many times that he has concerns over the vaccine. So I w- I can't imagine Novak playing ATP finals and then playing Davis Cup finals, which really mattered to him. Like he was, he was, he really wanted to try and win that thing and he didn't. And I can't imagine him being the kind of person who will make that decision, which seems to be a big decision for him and will make it while he's focused on these other things. Cause you know how Novak with his goals, they're like all encompassing with him. Like when he put, when he's like, I need to do this. So he said, my goal is to win Paris, Torino, Davis Cup, and then he only won one of the three. So I didn't, I can't imagine that he would give it that kind of thought during that period. And he knows that he has a maximum of two weeks to make this decision, probably less. So, so you, th- you think he could still be undecided? I mean, if, if what he's saying... I don't, I, I don't think so. I feel like he must already know. I feel like he must I already feel know he knows, but again, I'm, this is speculation. If I'm just going, on, uh, by, going by what he's saying, it seems that he's not decided. Okay? That's what he's saying, is that it's undecided. Why is he holding off, to be honest? Because this has been going on for so long, I don't, I don't care. Like, for me... He shows up, he doesn't show up, he's still going to be the favorite in the French. Like, he's, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he will. Well, then we're getting getting to issues of, it's interesting if you think he's the favorite of the French over Nadal, it's a different topic. But if, there's going to be more and more vaccine requirements on tour. I think basically the U.S. at this point is mandating double, full vaccination. And that's why I think he's vaccinated. That's why I think he might be vaccinated or might be forced to get vaccinated irrespective of the Australian Open because... His job is going to be so much harder by not being vaccinated. I mean, I'm a journalist and my life is harder, is, would have been harder if I'm not vaccinated. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, even the smallest things matter. Like the fact that I got vaccinated in Egypt, I had to make sure and go through hoops to make sure that my vaccination status is shown on the app in Abu Dhabi so that I am able to even go to a restaurant in Abu Dhabi. And all of these things, like we all need to do our part in proving that we're vac- first of all, getting vaccinated and then proving that we're vaccinated. So we can go elsewhere, right? Go anywhere, really. So I think that his job is going to become very hard, even from a sponsor's standpoint. Imagine a sponsor calling you up and being like, 
hey, uh, come to this event somewhere and he can't turn up and he needs an exemption or some sort of. So that's why I think he is pro he either he's already vaccinated or he knows he will have to do it. But sometimes if you don't, if you want to, if you're doing something that you don't really want to do, it just becomes this whole thing, you know, and that's why it's a thing. He obviously doesn't want to do it. Shout out to the Australian Open and by the, and the Australian government for mandating this and for finally, that's what's really going to drive up the tennis vaccination numbers, which have been so sluggish for so long. Australia finally putting their foot down and making it mandatory. Um, yeah, I just I just have very little patience for Djokovic's playing, you know, Hamlet, all this to be or not to be, and this sort of like sense of martyrdom that he's trying to evoke with like, oh, it's so tough being a person who has to be putting things, you know, not, not even saying, he's not saying these things out loud, but the subtext of it is like, I should have the right not to get vaccinated and continue going on, and there shouldn't be requirements for these things. He said that, he has said that repeatedly, he doesn't believe in vaccine mandates. Um, I don't know, I just, I just find it very off-putting. And very unbecoming. I think. Listen, I I, who, I think that wants, press conference in particular. In I think that press conference in particular wasn't a big deal because, first of all, he was already like super sad from the beginning because they lost. I'm not talking about that. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm not talking about that moment. That press conference. I'm talking about more his whole journey, which started. Remember, he was on the the COVID vaccine skepticism train way early back in like April 2020 before there was any hint of a vaccine coming anytime soon. He was already saying like, well, we'll see. I don't know. And his wife's posting about 5G. Like, I just think he has a terrible track record on this issue. And I don't, as much as I don't like picking these fights, because obviously Djokovic fans are, are very vicious about these things online. Like, it, it just, for me, it needs calling out. Like, how yeah, but you know, I think the, this is for him and for tennis. I think the difference, I think, first of all, because I have met so many people who have the same stance as, as Novak. And for me, it's it's an alien concept. Like, I don't get it. And obviously, I'm pro vaccines and everything. I'm pro science, basically, and on everything, <laughs> but in general. But like, mm-hmm. uh, but I've seen so many people who are like him or think the same way. And maybe now I'm kind of immune. I'm not, it just doesn't, it, it's, I'm not infuriated by it because. You're immune. Immune is a funny word to use there. I know, that's funny, pun intended. Uh, but. Um, that's why it's different, of course, because he has a huge platform, so he's influencing a lot of people, and that's where it gets more dangerous, kind of. But, um, but I don't. But honestly, it's just with this vaccine thing. There, you'd be surprised how many people <laughs> think the same way. I know, I know, I know. It's very widespread, and I just it's feel scary. like he gives he gives that movement credibility by being someone who is such a uh, a, a star and a, a leader and a role model for so many people. And but and in he, his he's mind, a, he, he like, outside responsibility. No, but yeah. in his mind, even with his strong stance about this and the stuff that he has said, in his mind, this is how he is being a leader in speaking his truth and and standing up for what he believes in. He believes in freedoms. All of the I'm telling you from his standpoint. So it's it's a it's a double edged thing, you know. We we like applaud players for having stands for being, you know, curious or interested in social topics. And, you know, occasionally one of them is going to get something wildly wrong. It's true. <laughs> and, and be problematic. And, and, but also, I'll tell you what, like with Novak, especially, he, 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 ha- he is a multitude of things. There are so many things that he does that I think, I don't know if I was talking to you about it, but like, that's not publicized much, but like he spends money out of his pocket to pay for coaches for other Serbian players. Like, Jen. 
Oh yeah. yeah. He's the he's the most fascinating player. Yeah, so I, I like by so many leaps and bounds. Yeah, yeah, but uh, obviously this is coming at something that's 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 crucial to everyone's survival at the moment. So it's not great that you have someone with that big of a platform, who's who's not keen on vaccines. But again, if I think he's gonna show up, like I don't, I I genuinely think he's gonna play Australia. I don't think he will miss out on a chance. Especially that he's he's playing well, like he's he's in good form at the moment. He's not in bad form. I know. So and Australia is like a month away. So I I think he's he's gonna go. And honestly, I just think, I think that, w- that we're indulging. Like we don't need to pay attention to the back and forth. When he decides, we're gonna find out in like a couple of weeks, and that's it. No, but I also think that it's still super well. I mean, he like you said, he is the favorite if he shows up in Australia. Yeah. And so his status is really relevant. And so I also I'm not, yeah I'm not saying, saying it's like, not you, should, you guys shouldn't be asking or whatever no no a hundred percent it's a question that needs to You're be obsessed asked. with Novak they no a hundred percent it is a question that needs to be even I have feelings I'm working out here I can tell I can tell you have your thing with with the Nanoli fam but um, but yeah anyway for me I I was like it's gonna be asked had to be asked first of all the way it was asked like the follow up for that question was like a five minute monologue uh and and he's literally just looking down and he's like i want to be anywhere but here i just lost davis cup i was davis cup while winning all my matches like except doubles but like that and uh and then he he had to cut off the journalist because he went on for so long so he had to cut him off and and that's why he said i know what you want because you don't you can't really tell what was happening just from the transcript and stuff but he was basically the journalist went on and on and on and eventually he had to cut him off and be like I know what you want. I'm not going to say anything today. Anyway. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's exhausting, and I I think I think his calculation is going to come down to if he if he thinks that Australia is going to be a one off and he'll be able to if he is unvaccinated again. I hate using all these conditionals again. I, I hate that he's made it this confusing or 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 obscure, obscured. But if if it's clear to him that he won't be able to play professional tennis unvaccinated anymore. Which might become more and more the case, you know, if U.S. is open, then not, if U.S. is closed rather to the unvaccinated, then not only would he miss Australia, he'd miss Indian Wells, he'd miss Miami. At that point, you're not a full-time tennis player if you're not playing all these tournaments. Um, and maybe that's what he wants in his mid-30s. Maybe he wants to scale back on some level. But Which he also he has, has this said. goal but yeah. that is so close within his reach yeah. at being at 20 and, like, being so close to winning number 21. And then he can shut it off. I mean, like, but it just, like, I don't know. All of it is, it, I find that exhausting and aggravating. Um, and yeah, I, I just hope that he doesn't continue to be a bad role model for others and, 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 and give validity to these nonsense ideas. Um, so that, that's, that's my thoughts on Novak. You mentioned it earlier, uh, about the, we've alluded to it earlier, the whole situation with the WTA in China. We had, I did a, uh, interview with someone from Human Rights Watch, uh, Yacho Wang, who talked about the WTA decision to suspend relations with China from more of the China perspective. Obviously I did a, uh, episode with Tumani a couple weeks before that when the story was first gaining traction after the WTA's initial stance. Um, I'm curious to talk about this more from a tennis perspective, uh, what you th- what we think of is going to happen with this moment now and also the division um, and the responses between the governing bodies, uh, WTA taking its very sh- firm stance, already suspending tournaments in China, suspending, not canceling, to be clear. there's a, there's They left the door open for reconciliation, uh, but they did it is still at the same time decisive. Suspension, a public suspension is a very decisive action. The ATP being nowhere near as decisive, so not saying they were going to follow suit. It'd be weird to have like Beijing, which is like a single event, by the way. And then the ITF, 
staying closer, understandably, to or not predict under predicted predictably better, maybe better than understandably, to the IOC sort of line of thinking, saying they don't want to you know close off this market of a billion people, and that they're going to sort of not do anything to punish China as a market uh, for this saga at the moment, at least. Where does tennis go from here as a sport when it comes to this enormous market? Uh, and I'll add also, I mentioned this briefly in the in the podcast with Yasha Wang, but obviously it's not really her turf. I'm very curious what happens to the Chinese players uh, in the WTA, of whom there are not tons, but there are some promising ones. Certainly the X-Wangs, both of them, are are really good players and have the potential to be you know at least top 50 players uh, for years. Who knows what their ceiling is? But they're, they're good juniors. They've got a lot of potential. They're fun to watch. Um, and some other, you know, rising players as well, Jing Chinwen, um, Zhang Chinwen. Uh, yeah. What, what do you, what do you, what do you think happens next in this, in this story? Where does, where does the saga continue to unravel from, from here? I think it's going to get very complicated if the ATP and WTA keep taking a different approach to this. Uh, I think it's just gonna be really bad if it's ne- it's next year and the next year and there's like like you said it's a combined WTA and ATP event and suddenly the men are at the China Open the women aren't there it doesn't make any sense um, I think that the ATP every like most of them who have spoken at least like Medvedev and Rublev they both said the same thing which is like oh, the tournaments are still, like, next fall, so we have plenty of time for this to be resolved. And I think that's kind of the, the, the hope for everyone. Everyone is thinking, okay, like, by, by the time the, the China swing comes along, things will be better. But um, where does the sport go from here? I think the WTA, uh, which I, I respect tremendously, what Steve Simon has done, um, it's just yeah. a bit... It, and also, we can see that the, the, the women players are all really behind them, even the ones who know that, oh, we're missing out on money now. Like, all of them, a, across the... All rankings, all rankings. The, it's, the lo- pre- it's pretty darn unanimous. Yeah. Certainly no one has spoken out against this. Exactly. And, you know, may, maybe this changes over time if they see their checking accounts lighter at the end of next year. Um, and they see other cutbacks in the organization. We'll see they're losing a lot of funding. Mm. From this, uh, we'll see if they can if they're successful in in replacing that funding or, or restoring it from other sources. And that's one of the big challenges, something to watch going forward for them. But you're totally right. Like the the support that WTA has gotten from its players and its ranks is hugely unanimous. Many have been outspoken about it, but behind the scenes too, there's total solidarity and tons and tons of respect for for Steve Simon mm. and lots of the guys. Yeah. Too exactly. are are really are really supportive of the WTA's stance. Uh, Mahout, from ranging from like Mahout to Liam Brody to Tennis Sanger, and it's one of this like interesting mix of people mm-hmm. who like who like sort of across various spectrums who are who are aligning. There's some weird bedfellows happening in the story, just like on a political level that I find personally fascinating to see like all these like Republican politicians like championing women's tennis. Suddenly, it's it's been very odd for me um, and, and incongruous, but I also get it. Um, and because it's a chance for them to sort of beat their anti-China drum, which they love doing. Um, but I also think it's weird that, like, Democrats, for example, are not taking the same opportunity because this case feels so clean in that situation. Anyway, that's a different sort of side topic. But, yeah, I, I, I've, I've been struck at how, um, how vocal and supportive they have been of the, of the WTA's response. I'm talking about the men. And also how critical they've been of the ATP's response. There's not been a lot of love. Yeah. For this ATP leadership, I think generally they, these guys do not seem to have the support. Uh, the guys, meaning Garenzi 
and Calfelli, uh, the two Italians on top of the support. I don't seem to have a ton of support from their uh, their ranks, and I wonder if that's going to lead to more instability, more backroom, you know, front office drama, ATP coming up soon. It just seems like they they don't have the confidence of their of their players right now, and I, maybe the men are just perpetually unsatisfied uh, in life, and there's never going to be anything. But I do feel like this was a case where the WTA. To tell you, that was remarkable. To be clear, like what the WTA did is pretty unprecedented. It's still, uh, it's still sports, for me across, across business. Yeah, it still blows yeah. my mind, Go honestly, ahead. that they did that. That they did that, and 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 how how unwavering Steve Simon has been, no matter what was yeah. happening, no matter the reaction, and coming from a sport from an organization that really cannot afford to do this. The, the what what happened right like what's happening and what will happen is there's going to be serious financial ramifications for all of this and i think what the, the i hope and i know someone like steve simon who's a businessman i really hope that he already has like a crisis management team already working on figuring out ways okay ways of how some of this money can be recouped elsewhere they have to figure out because and honestly i really hope that businesses who care about something like this go out of their way yes. and i hope journalists even because we both know how much attention sometimes the wta gets in compare in comparison to the to the atp even if it's misguided or whatever but i we should all as much as we can give proper attention to the tour the tour if the tour is constantly being written about these women are constantly being written about it's going to become an even more lucrative Completely. The challenge right now is converting all this goodwill they've earned and earned rightfully and by doing a hard thing. That does not equal money in the bank. The goodwill, you can't cash that at the bank. You They need to figure out some way to, to translate and to turn all this positivity and support they're getting from just pats on the back to checks in their hand. You know, like they need to do something. And, and, and while this moment is hot, honestly, like in this, like this month, next month, like you got to be on top of this and finding companies who want to or organizations or movements or individuals or whoever who really are impressed by by Steve Simon, whether they are, you know, I don't know, some Ted Cruz supporter or some, you know, other human rights person or whatever other weird conflagration of people are coming together to the back of the WTA on this, you know, like there should be a, a, a way to make sure that this because this it, it, it's frustrating to know how likely it is that this winds up being a harmful thing to the business, right? And that's frustrating, mm. given it is how frustrating, and right and given how, exactly how important it is, and given that the main thing that really needs to be solved out of all of this is that Peng Shui gets to have autonomy over her actions and thought and everything, and is safe and can do whatever she wants because and also has her allegations uh, investigated. All of these things need to happen because if if ultimately. Not neither like the the, the WTA goes broke and Feng Shui is still in this city situation. That's like a, the ter- a terrible thing to fathom. Like you know, uh, it's possible, but it's it's just yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not saying the WTA will go broke, but you know what I mean. It's no, but I but I think that it's worth I think it's worth talking about in these terms that it's not a given that the WTA will be rewarded for doing the right thing. That's just not how the world works. You know, there there there's not always a happy ending for people who do the right thing you know good the right you know people know this people who've lived in the world for any length of time know that you know making good choices or making the right choices for moral reasons or ethical reasons over cash reasons those are not always rewarded in the end in some you know fairy tale movie hollywood way 
Um, so I hope I hope that people can't stand by the WTA, that corporations and businesses want to invest in them, um, and that they can use this. And also kind of make this maybe more central to their brand. The WTA has been, compared to their uh, history or their very early history, like the, you know, Billie Jean King era of starting up, uh, a lot of their sort of tenure in the 21st century, I think, has been not very at all radical. I think it's been playing it very safe in terms of the messaging, in terms of the symbolism, um, and certainly compared to like the WNBA, who's the other big uh, women's sports organization in the U.S., at least like the WNBA is so much more overtly political and symbolic and talking about these issues and being progressive. That has not been the WTA stance. The WTA obviously has a much more complicated geopolitical landscape of trying to navigate, trying to be palatable to lots of different markets and lots of very different countries and stuff. And so it's tricky, but I no, also it's think not even comparable. I don't even for, think it's tricky. No. I think it's not comparable at all when you're going to all these different yeah. countries, because also like, I, I understand how difficult it is to try and appeal to all these different markets with and and there are so many countries that have so many every I believe every single country in the world has issues okay but some of, of course. and some of them are so easy to pick at and some of them are not depending on what what's happening right so uh, I understand with so many other things how the WTA needed to 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 be diplomatic you know but uh, but I'm very and and which makes it even more remarkable what they've done. It it is amazing what yep. they've done. Well, the one thing I do want to say in terms of just from a practical standpoint, they have had to operate away from China anyway because of the pandemic for the last two seasons. So maybe yep. that kind of at least gave them uh, the framework of how they can imagine if they need to. Like you said, it's still a suspension, which I have also been noting. It's just the, su- the suspension of the tournaments, mm-hmm. but. Uh, all of the tournaments that popped up uh, in uh, September and October, they need to look at the uh, possibility of lon- longevity. They need to look at possibility of finding new sponsors for them so that the prize money is not tiny because some of these tournaments that popped up really were just a playing opportunity, yeah. but they really didn't offer a lot of money. And build and, on that. And the rights for the sanction, too. Not just It's not just prize money, too. That's obviously the most front-facing part, but yeah. you have to buy the rights to these sanctions. And, That's how the WTA actually gets the money. And, it's, and the sanctions are usually yeah. worth... Uh, a multi, they're multi-million uh, contracts, you know? like Because yeah. uh, I do remember Abu Dhabi once wanted to get an, an, a tournament here, and it fell through at the very last minute because the the... Basically, they didn't want to pay all this. Like, it's a one-time fee that you get to buy the the sanction, but it's a big fee, right? So, um, yeah. so yeah. I mean, maybe the the WSA will even look at different ways of having these contracts and sanctions given out. Maybe, maybe they need to start doing things a bit differently to make it more lucrative for other people to buy yeah. these weeks. But uh, I, I, I hope that someone in parallel is working on trying to make sure that some of this. The, the players are still getting some money in that part of the year, basically. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I, we talked about this, you know, on the show. I did a podcast with Danny Valverde, who was one of the organizers of the San Diego Open, about all the benefits that were coming this past season in tennis from the tour being more nimble, more able to actually pick up a lot of the sanctions that were available from China, canceling all their tournaments uh, and putting those in markets that had been underserved and a lot of traditional markets actually in Europe in in North America um, where you know tennis is not a, a new concept but it just hadn't been tapped into Chicago notably had three WTA events including a, a 125 um, there's a lot of chance for for that sort of reset and finding 
new homes for it. Yeah, I just, I just hope. Again, I think, I think it's time for the rest of the world to sort of stop just paying lip service to the WTA and their bravery here. And another thing I will say about WTA, because I think people really understand, miss, don't get this from outside of the support. WTA is a small business. This is not a big company. This is not some some hulking, uh, you know. It is yes, a multinational corporation and stuff, but it has I think under three hundred employees, full time. Like it's just not a big, you know, company that's like, that's too big to fail. Let's say that. Like they are a company. It's small. Um, it's underdog in a lot of times, even though they are a leader in women's sports. Women's sports is always kind of an underdog in some sense, and and yeah, so they're they're more vulnerable. Their vulnerability should not be discounted, I guess, in this moment, mm. is what I'm what I'm trying to say. So I hope I hope yeah I hope that they I hope that they I think they did things for the right reason and I hope people support them for for good reasons for that as well. But it's not totally up to them uh, how they come out of this or what the consequences are. It's up to the market uh, to decide and, and support them. And I can't possibly I, when you think of reconciliation. I can't even imagine what that would look like. Like I, no, it it seems so far away just because of the way every, any statements coming out of China and all of that have been like just complete like dismissal of everything and just kind of accusing the WCA of of grandstanding or doing whatever. So it's so it in my mind I cannot even imagine how reconciliation can happen. Uh, Steve Simon kept saying that like he's in contact with like their partners in like Jamdell Sports and for all of these people for sure are talking to to Steve Simon. But imagine even that Chinese company that still wants to maintain that relationship. Will the country even let them? You know, it's got it's 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 a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's tough, and they really had banked on those companies a lot in the last few years. They really did build their house on this on this uh, soil. And now it, that sort of is, is shifting very, un, you know, unsteadily underneath their foundation. And so it's a tough, tough time. That should not be underestimated. I, yeah, again, I'll say it for like a fifth time. I just hope the rest of the world steps up and, and helps the WTA out. Because it's a great product also. I think it's not just purely from a sympathy, you know, vibe. But like... Oh my God, it's amazing. It resonates with oh so God. many, many people. It's a fantastic product. And like seeing the markets, it's actually... I, you know, I have reasons for optimism. The markets that are currently with like the big rising stars in women's tennis are japan obviously with osaka who's not is established not rising anymore but you know what i mean and and now britain with radu kanu and i know that she's obviously not the level of making it being like a favorite to make it to the year-end championships next year let's say but you know that has reawakened excitement for for women's tennis in britain and they would they would be after losing the men's uh tour championships there i've called this event like 15 different times different different ways during the course of the show uh to circle back but uh I think, you know, the O2 would be a cool place to host the, the women's finals. You know, there's lots of places that could do it and could find this moment. So I just hope the individual business leaders yeah. um, are there thinking about how... They, maybe it's already happening, for all I know. Maybe this is already happening. The phones are already ringing at WTAHQ. I hope so. I, I don't know, but I hope so. So, yeah, those are the main things I wanted to cover. Um, speaking of Australia, which is... Well, two, okay, just two, two more things. Australia is approaching very fast. Uh, it's in about... Uh, less than four weeks away. Let's start next season, which is crazy. Is this how tough is this going to be? This turnaround for folks. We already saw today uh, Bianca Andreescu uh, say that she's going to uh, be sitting out at the beginning of the season, wants to take a mental health break. Totally understandable. Very glad that's becoming more more common, and hope players continue looking out for themselves uh, in those ways. Um, easier said than done, but I'm glad it's becoming more common for people to uh, to do that. The season was very, very long. It started with a long quarantine for players at the beginning of 2021. Um, 
do you think what do you what do you expect the sort of the tour to be like in in Australia come the start of next season where both of us also don't know if we'll be or not I think a lot of the players are uh, approaching the situation uh, they're gonna have very 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 short uh, preseason training blocks uh, and they're gonna have their proper training blocks in Feb a lot of them are gonna do that uh, that's that's what some of them said at least and it makes sense to be honest because you can't you can't now have have a proper vacation have a proper preseason training and not go to australia feeling wiped like it doesn't matter it's impossible so i think that they're just going to keep the adrenaline going the, the the ones who finished very late and then i think everyone will disappear in feb like those feb tournaments are just going to be people who didn't play fi- atp finals and davis cup finals and stuff uh, for me personally, I'm more just as my job, I am wiped. Like, even though I did give myself a mental health break earlier, it wasn't like a complete break, but it was like July and July and August for me were kind of, I stepped away for a bit. But because it's been back to back every single week, back to back for me for a while, I have Mubadala ex- tennis the exhibition in Abu Dhabi. I have it next week and I have the Formula One this weekend. So I I keep going back and forth about Australia because it's it's going to be a long trip. I'm also worried that Australia will decide to shut down again and I don't want to get stuck there and like there's so many so many things that are factoring my decision, but I also have this feeling where if I start the year by doubting every single trip, I'm just going to have another full year where I'm at home. I, I don't know how much of my uh, trepidation is. Is it based on fact? Is it based on me just honestly just scared of having these long trips again? I haven't done it in a long time. It's it's a, it's different. I mean, I think the, the Formula One is going to be a big test for me just because it's going to be my first proper full event where I'm on site every day for the four days. And so I'll, I'll see how I feel after that. But I'm I'm not used to being around people. I'm not used to being around a lot of people. I'm not used to being in a media center around people. I'm not used to taking long flights. The, lo- the longest flight I've taken has just been Cairo, uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai. So, yeah. yeah. Um, for players, I think, uh, yeah, it, it will definitely affect how they play, I think, in Australia. But again, I think they're going to take a break after that. The uncertainty is what gets me, like just not knowing what's going to happen. I, I've applied for my visa for Australia. I want to go. I have a flight booked. Um, I haven't booked lodging yet. I'll talk to you about that after, <laughs> actually, because I want to get your recommendations for stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, just obviously how late the calendar came out for Australia. I mean, like I've gone to Brisbane so many times. So I was like, can I go to Brisbane this year? Let's see if like, but then didn't find out until I guess I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was very late when they announced what the pre-schedule for Australia would be this year. No Brisbane, uh, just Adelaide and then Melbourne, uh, basically. But no, there's Sydney. Sydney. No, but there's Sydney for the women. Okay, that too. There's yeah. Adel- um, There's two Adelaides, I think, and one Sydney. Two Adelaides, and there's also Melbourne in the first week of, of the year as well. There's, there's multiple. There's two Melbournes. Yeah. Yeah, it's anyway, a lot. All, my, my, <laughs> point, my point there was more. My point there was more. It's a lot, but also how late in the game it got announced. Yeah. Like, you just can't plan for things. And then, like, okay, I'm going to book my flights. Oh, here's a new variant that's already causing countries to close off yeah. again. Like, yeah. coming at, like, the exact sort of wrong time for, selfishly, for us in this moment of trying to plan out what we're going to do and not do. Knowing how quick Australia has been to shut down completely on stuff. Um, exactly. That's the thing. Very they, nervous about they, there. The things can like, change really quickly for them there. And that's I also don't know if they feel like they're, like, if that's no longer their strategy, though. I, because they've been, they've had a lot more cases in the last few months. Uh they no longer are at the sort of zero cases a day 
you know, thing but it's they about having for a long foreigner, time. The foreigners in and out. That's the biggest problem because even flying out, you might not even find a flight to leave. These things change. It's weird. And uh, yeah. I mean, I was. I have a flight out at the moment. I bought a flight home, but but I don't know. Yeah, I was just saying, like in terms of the sort of stress of it, that's crazy to me that I don't know if I'm going to be definitely on a plane in less than four weeks. It's definitely affected our anxiety levels. Like even oh, yeah. even if I have, I do have this acceptance about every, with every single trip because I was going to go to Davis Cup and I was, but my visa came out late and it was a whole thing. But like I was going to Europe. But then as soon as I saw like, oh, look, Europe's shutting down and they're having these new rules for every different country because of the, they have a lot of cases even before Omicron, right? So immediately I'm like, oh, okay, thank God I didn't travel. And then it's just this continuous back and forth. So even in my mind, if I say I have this complete acceptance of, listen, this is what my job is like right now. I've done it for two years now at home. It's okay if I keep doing it longer than that this way. But there is this part of you where you feel I want to do my job well and to do it well, you want to be there. I got to say, it's going to be, it'd be hard. We've been in a little bit different scenarios. I did go to both Wimbledon and the U S open in person this year. And it will be hard. And being there made me realize how much I have been missing by not being there in person. And even with limited access, never seeing players in person at uh, Wimbledon in the press conferences, even with not being able to go to player areas, still just like being at the events, you feel such a deeper connection to the event than when you're in your bedroom, especially when it's some massive time difference like Australia would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've gone so long without seeing so many of these people or talking in person. So many of these people who are on my beat, I would love to just have, you know, like, cause I don't think Australia will be tightly bubbled this year. Um, if they, you know, assuming they don't change anything to be able to like run people in a hotel lobby and talk for the first time in years yeah. to people um, it's something I really want to be able to do just as a beat reporter on my job to reconnect with my, my beat and my sources and, and to get back on that. And, and also with the um, younger players that the ones who popped up this year, they don't know who we are and we are the They pe- don't know us. They don't know us and it makes, and a di- it makes a difference. I mean, when I'm, when I'm yeah. suddenly popping up on a zoom and speaking to Carlos Alcaraz, like he's like, who is this person? Yeah. Like, it's not, it's, yeah. With the coaches yeah. as well. I mean, I think we spoke about this before. Like, it's so hard keeping up with new coaches and new staff and stuff like that because we're, we're not watching the practices and stuff. So And you just and you just don't hear, you don't hear things organically too. Yeah. Like, everything you get has to be pretty much over a text. And, like, it's so much easier to run into someone in a hallway and have them just say, oh, I just, you know, was in the player lounge and so-and-so was just there tearfully firing her coach or something it's like oh that's how you you know obviously that sort of gossip mill you can sort of trivialize in some ways but that's you know that's part of being on the on the job is hearing being there and getting a sense of what's going on there where the conversations are there which made it hard for lots of things to try to you know to judge the temperature of different issues mm-hmm. on the tour this year whether it's vaccinations whether it's you know like the Zverev whole situation like lots of different stuff it becomes tougher when you're at a remove to regain the to understand the conversations happening on tour and I think that tennis reporting has been massively hurt by that. And I hope that, and I know that getting back there in person is part of making that better. Uh, so I want to get there. I have my application and I have my flight. I'm hoping that I get approved. I assume I'll get approved, but also just like, I hate the waiting. Well, to I be honest, I'm, uh, I'm, I risked a lot because I had to go to Cairo last week. So I, I still haven't applied for my Australia visa. I'm supposed to do it in the next couple of days, but, uh, yeah, but I could basically, I, I couldn't, but, um, I have the only thing I have is a hotel room, which you can have if you need it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I have a studio no, we'll rented, uh, like a studio apartment rented uh, 
but I don't have a flight and I don't have a visa, but I do have the exemption to apply for the visa, which is a step. I got that. But, yeah, uh, but so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how I, I did. I really didn't want to start 2022 by covering Australia from the Middle East. That's something I really didn't want. I didn't want the, the year to start on that note. Um, it has seriously affected my mental health like just and that's another reason maybe why some of these zooms that i'm telling you were not busy is because even the journalists themselves are just over it they're so over we're we're so over being muted every two seconds we're so over like it, it the whole thing is just not it's not human it's not a, a normal human no, interaction it's dehumanizing yeah yeah it's so like even when the room the zoom rooms are empty He's still getting muted and you're still like waving like an idiot trying to tell the guy like, hey, I'm here. And, and then the player notices you and they're like, hey, by the way, Reem is waving. Like, can we give her a question? Like, come on, come on. We're people. We're trying to do our jobs. Like, enough, enough. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm hopeful. That's what, again, I really want to be there. I want to get back to doing my job like normal and, and you know, I have my vaccines and get my booster before I get in the plane if I'm getting there. So I'm ready to, to do my part and to be a, a function member of society to try to start functioning again normally. Uh, we'll see, we will see. Uh, yeah, I have every single possible version of proof of vaccination you can think of. I have it showing <laughs> digitally in two different apps, my Egyptian one and the Emirati one. And I also have an English version translated like print copy of my Egyptian one. And then I have another one that's like Arabic. And then I have every in case anyone ever wants to ask me if I'm vaccinated, I'd be like, what do you want? What do you want? <laughs> I have it. <laughs> Here's a scroll of, of vaccination proof. to pull Yeah. Out. yeah. Uh, I went all out when it came to that, because every time they would like make something available, I'm like, yep, I got to get that ready. So I'm kind of ready to, to, to be like traveling but I just, uh, yeah, we'll see. Well, we will thank all of you for riding this journey with us and your support as we treasure into the unknown further and further. Uh, Reem, thank you very much for being on here, as always. It's been a while. We hadn't, yeah, we were looking, I don't think you've been on the show since the French Open Men's Final, so it's been too long, but glad you took your breaks as needed, and hopefully, fingers crossed, see you in Australia, uh, both over on the microphone doing some ncrs in person together and also more importantly across some plates of dumplings from each other oh uh that would be getting so some good. Sun. i mean oh, i eat I dumplings feel, I, without you guys and i feel so bad that i send you photos of the dumplings <laughs> i have done that <laughs> just because i'm like which doesn't help i just want dumplings <laughs> no but like i'm like i can't eat dentai fung without you so i just send you pictures yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, we couldn't do the show without the support of our Patreon uh, backers. We want to thank them once we thank every episode our Slam Champ backers Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valender, Timothy Liu, and Ashley Keel, and our GOAT backers Pam Shriver and J.O.D. Reem, thank you very much. Also, your Patreon is still there if you want to support Reem. As always, patreon.com slash Reem Abuleo. We linked in the show notes. Reem, uh any any musical thoughts as we wrap up this year some song about fatigue or something i don't know how are we feeling <laughs> maybe not yeah i i uh, i'm too tired to even think of something creative right now i also i literally have spent the whole year listening to like one album so i am not in a creative mood at all which album is that the heim one <laughs> oh nice <laughs> yeah it's just been on repeat Heim's third one yeah 
Exactly. Yeah, we'll put something for that. We'll put, in, in honor of licorice pizza. Which 3 a.m. because it's close to 3 a.m. We can you can play yeah. 3 a.m. I'm obsessed with that album and it never gets old. It's really good. It's a really really good album. We used it before on, on here. We've definitely played um, Los Angeles. Yeah. It's definitely been an outro. When when we did an episode with Pam Shriver, who's calling uh, the U.S. Open from her home in L.A. There's like a verse about comparing New York and L.A. that we did. <laughs> anyway. Deep cuts from the outro archives. Uh, read things again. Here's mine. Bye, folks. Bye.